You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. If you're new with us, my name is Joe, one of the leaders here, and I'm stoked to have you guys here with us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, verses 23 through 27. And before we dive into that section of text, um, I just want us to bow our heads in prayer over the word real fast. So please uh, bow your heads with me. Father, please help us uh, this morning as we come before you with the word open. But I pray that you would help us to understand the meaning of the text and I pray, God, that you would take it and apply it to our hearts and our lives. But I pray that you would open our minds, that our thinking might be transformed and changed by the power of your word through the work of your spirit deep within us. But I pray that you would, that you would help me as I preach this text to lift high the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would be made famous among us this morning. Lord, as we study this text, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and as we continue to just dive into what it means and what it looks like to be your disciples, Lord, I pray that, I pray, God, that you would do a mighty work in each of us. Thank you for the message of the cross, and thank you for the message of the Gospel this morning. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Excuse me. So many of you guys know, if, you, if you've met me, you know me very well, you know that one of my favorite things in all of the world is um, a, a deep appreciation for old westerns. And so Saturdays during this season, if you turn on TV, if you have cable TV, I think it's like A&E or something like that, you'll find on Saturdays old westerns from early in the morning until late at night. And so, so I... I just need to confess to you guys that I worked really hard yesterday. <laughs> I laid on my couch all day watching one Western after the other. And see, when I was younger, my mom kind of helped to give me this deep appreciation and love for old Westerns. And as I grew up watching them and learning how to discern the difference between kind of the, the outlaws and, and the lawmen or the, the the bad guys and the good guys, um, in many cases, um, I would learn character, the difference between good character and bad character from watching old westerns. There's definitely a difference between them. But oftentimes, these guys look nearly the same, right? They wear the same hats, they carry the same guns. They go to the same saloons, they play the same card games, they wear the same chaps, the same cowboy boots, they ride the same horses, they smoke the same cigars, they drink the same drinks. And so oftentimes, these guys in these old westerns look exactly the same. And one of the things that I love doing growing up, and even today, is picking out the differences between the bad guys and the good guys in these old westerns as I watch them. And sometimes, sometimes you'd have a bad guy masquerading as a good guy. And then you have to kind of route him out and figure out who he is and take him out because he was bad, right? And there was a difference between those bad dudes and those westerns and those good guys. Usually the good guys would try to uphold the law 
And the bad guys were always taking advantage of people, destroying people around them, stealing, lying, cheating at card games, calling people out in the street for a gunfight because they got butthurt about something. And usually the good guys would step in and then hopefully they would win. And when they would win, we would all cheer, right? And so it's one of the things I loved about watching those movies. You could typically pick out the good guys by the way that they sought to protect the weak and the disadvantaged, and by their relentless courage in the face of death and in their stand and their fight against what is wrong. They would always stand for what is right. In other words, you always knew who those lawmen were by the way that they lived, by the things that they pursued in life, and by their ability to stand for what is right. The same is true of the Christian journey for us as well. How can you know if someone is truly a disciple of Jesus? So this is, this is what we're going to wrestle with today. Much like when watching those old westerns, you'd ask the question, now, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy? Who's the real cowboy and who's the dude, the, the loser? Because to call a cowboy a dude would be to call him not a cowboy, right? And we have to ask this question because this is the question of the text today as we dive into it. How can you know if someone is a disciple of Jesus? It's the question we wrestle with because it's the question that Luke wrestles with in our text. And Philip Ryken says it this way. He answers the question this way. He says, confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior means much more than simply knowing who Jesus is or what he came to do. It means that his life and all its suffering Comes the pattern for our lives. The only Christ that anyone can confess is Christ crucified. And the only way to confess him is to follow him all the way to the cross. It's not enough just to sit in a hip church. It's not enough just to study theological books or just to read your Bible. It's not enough just to serve the poor or to give money to the church, or to join a gospel community. Those things don't make you a Christian. Though those things are good, and I believe every believer should practice those things and more, because the scriptures instruct us to, those things do not make you a disciple of Jesus. Religious activity will not prove that you are a disciple. But what the scriptures actually teach us is this, the disciples of Jesus live like Jesus. They live like Jesus, pursuing Christ, pursuing God, pursuing the Father, pursuing the kingdom, and not pursuing all of the things that the world has to offer us. And the reason that disciples of Jesus follow hard after him, not pursuing the things of the world, is because they've seen the kingdom of God. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to live like Jesus? What does it mean to not pursue worldly gain? What does it look like? What does it mean to see the kingdom of God at work? What does it mean to see the rule of God at work in someone's life, therefore proving that they are, in fact, a disciple of Jesus? Jesus. 
And look at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9 with me. Verse 23. And he said to all, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The disciples of Jesus live like Jesus. What does it mean to live like Jesus? And have, you, have you ever observed the way that some people live? You ever observed the way that some people live and, and then wondered what caused them to live this way? Like what happened in their lives to cause them to continue to live the way that they do? Ever wondered about their circumstances of life or their parental upbringing? Wondered about the influences that have caused them to live the way that they do? And I, I know that when I think about some of the ways that I have lived, I am, I am horrified about some of the ways that I have lived. And, and sure, some of the ways that, that I have often lived throughout my life can be attributed to my parents or maybe to some of the freakish things that have happened to me that caused harm in my life. Sometimes some of the horrifying ways that I've lived has just been my plain stupidity, right? But even as I observed those things and I observed the ways that I have lived, some of these ways that would horrify many of you if you knew, I realized that I was only living in accordance to something or someone that I was following, that I was pursuing, before Jesus, I was oftentimes following the, the popular opinion of the crowd. Oftentimes, I was following the example of my parents, or I was following my sinful lusts and desires that were welling up from deep within me. And the reality is this, that, that, that even with all of that, I was, was following everything that was contrary to Jesus, even though even though I could tell you that Jesus was the Messiah and that he died for my sins. Verbally, I could tell you those things, but my life wasn't showing it. And this, this is precisely what Jesus is talking about as Luke records what he says. He's confronting things when he basically says, hey guys, hey guys, you know who I am. That's, that's awesome. You can answer that one Sunday school question. You know who I am. Great. Now I want you to live like me. I want you to live like me and deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross daily. Follow me to the death. Don't seek to preserve yourself. Give yourself willingly for my sake. This is what it means to be saved. And you think about catchy slogans and reasons to become part of the church family. And come be a part of our church. We have awesome coffee. Come to our church. We'll give you a t-shirt. Come to our church. It's got the comfiest seats in town. Come to our church. We're, we're, we're spending money on the biggest causes in the nation. We're helping more people than anybody else. Come to our church for that reason. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, when you become my disciple, you know what you get. There's a pile of crosses out back. Go pick one up. The cross is a picture of execution. 
The cross is a tool of death. It's not just some really cool thing that you put around your neck or that you put on your wrist. It's not just some cool symbol that you tattoo on your arm or that you hang from your rearview mirror. See, that's popular Christianity today. And to do those things, you might think that it might be some sort of a symbol or sign that you might be acquainted with Christianity. But it does not make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, when he says, if anyone would come after me in this text, are you part of the anyone crowd? Are you, can you be lumped in with that crowd? Are you one of those anyones who is seeking hard to go after Jesus and to follow after him? Are you pursuing Christ? Do you genuinely desire to live like Jesus? Many Christians would nod their heads and say, yeah and live with no fruit in their lives whatsoever? Are you actively denying your fleshly desires? Jesus denied himself of all of his rights so that you and I could walk free. And he says, I want you to live just like me. I want you to live in a way that would deny yourself of your fleshly desires so that you may live in the freedom of the shadow of the cross. Pick up your cross daily. Jesus picked up his cross so that you and I might be free from the power of Satan, sin, and the grave. Also that our sinful tendencies could be executed. Are those sinful tendencies in your life being executed? Are you willing to take drastic measures to put to death the sin that is controlling you? Because if you're not willing to take drastic measures to execute the sinful patterns in your life, I'd be hard-pressed to affirm that you are a Christian. Because Jesus took drastic measures to murder the sin that is killing you and I. And when we say that we are repenting and turning in faith to follow Christ, and when we bear the name of Christian, we are bearing the name of Christ himself who has given himself for you and I, not to sit back passively in our sin, but to follow him as he executes that sin in our lives. This is what it means to be a disciple of of Christ who lives like Jesus. Man, as you're following Jesus, are you following him to the point of putting yourself to death so that in Christ you might live? Or... Or is self-preservation and self-protection what characterizes your life? Is it Christ? Or is it self-preservation and self-protection? To think about this with me. What does it look like to employ self-preserving and self-protecting tactics? Here's just a few examples to think about. Peter from the scriptures. He was self-preserving and self-protecting when he denied Christ three times. Somebody said, hey, 
Don't you know that Jesus? Weren't you walking with him? No, I don't know him. He was protecting himself and trying to preserve himself from what might happen if someone actually saw him profess the name of Christ in a radical circumstance. But I want you to think of the disciples throughout the scriptures. The disciples were self-preserving and self-protecting when they abandoned Christ at the cross. If you read the rest of this gospel message and story, when Christ goes to the cross, he winds up being alone except for one or two disciples and a handful of women. Everyone else who had followed him, everyone else who thought Jesus is my homeboy, everyone else who claimed the message of Christianity had abandoned him. He was alone. This was the disciples' reaction during this time was to leave. Self-preserving, self-protecting. How about the Jews? The Jews, throughout the scriptures, as you study and as you read, they were self-preserving and self-protecting, especially when they crucified Christ. They were trying and attempting to preserve their stature, their power, their image in the community and heaven forbid if some other prophet would come and speak powerful things that actually set people free because it would kill the religious establishment and so to protect themselves and to preserve their image in front of everyone they murdered Christ shamefully how about King Herod How about King Herod in the scriptures we studied about him a a number of weeks ago as we've been studying this gospel? You remember King Herod should have been the pastor in the church. He should have been an elder. He, He was ruling the entire nation of Israel. He would have known the scriptures better than you and I. He would have been able to recite them verbatim from memory on the street corner. He would have been the poster child for Christianity in his time. But King Herod... When he gets confronted by John the Baptist for his sexual sin publicly, what did King Herod do? His response was to murder John the Baptist and to have him beheaded because he had called him out for his sin. Self-protecting, self-preserving tactics. Listen, one of the common threads One of the common threads of holiness throughout Scripture is relational holiness. As you continue to weave this trail all through Scripture and you begin to think more about what it means to live like Jesus. Did Jesus have enemies? Yes, he did. But did Jesus walk out those relationships in holiness? Yes, he did. We don't see Jesus using people for shameful gain. We don't, see, we don't see Jesus in relationship with others merely to get something for himself. We see Jesus in relationship with others to serve them. We see Jesus saying very direct and hard things all throughout the scriptures. Relational holiness. Even a brief look at the epistles that the apostles wrote to the churches 
reveals this radical call towards relational holiness, which is the fruit of discipleship. It's the fruit of following Jesus. It's the fruit of living like Jesus. And is your story littered with one broken relationship after the other? Is your story littered with you always being the victim when somebody else is always trying to pick on you? Do you always seek to level the playing field like life is a game to be played so that you can get the attention off of you? When a brother or a sister approaches you in hopes of correcting sinful behavior, are you willing to listen or are you quick to point the finger back at them? Are you quick to become offended? Are you quick to disengage the relationship? And this is the fruit of self-protecting, self-preserving lifestyle. It's an enemy of living like Jesus. Please remember this. The disciples of Jesus live like Jesus by denying their sinful desires, by executing sin daily, following Jesus to the death. Following Jesus and calling yourself a disciple of Jesus and calling yourself a Christian is so much more than we can really understand this side of heaven. I just want to encourage you guys, if you would open the scriptures throughout the week in between your Sundays, if you would study the life of Christ, you would find a life that was radical in the face of everything else that was happening you will find a life that is radical in the face of what our current religious establishment calls Christianity. You will find a radical life of pursuing death so that you can truly live. That's what you'll find. If you truly follow Jesus, if you're truly a disciple of his, you will live like him. This isn't all that Jesus says, though, about what it means to be a disciple. Look at verses 25 to 26. He says this. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The disciples of Jesus don't pursue what the world offers. And a friend of mine always says this, my friend Jack. He always says, what you tolerate will never change. What you tolerate will never change. Ask yourself, what have I been tolerating in my life? I'm not asking you, what are you tolerating in other people's lives yet? I'm asking you, what do you tolerate in your own heart, in your own thinking, in your own desires, in your own lifestyle, your own actions? What do you tolerate? What do you live with? What do you shake off? What do you walk away from and say, oh, I'm just a sinner, so it's okay, or oh, poor pitiful me, so I go back into more sin. What do you tolerate that is murdering you and killing you that Jesus wants to put to death? 
Because what you tolerate will never change. Another way of saying it would be to say this. It would be to say that continued compromise leads to stagnant complacency. Stagnant complacency. The more that you compromise in the areas of what God's word says is true. (coughs) The more that you compromise in your thinking, the more that you compromise those desires deep down inside of you, the more that you compromise the way that you live and the way that you treat people and the way that you talk to people and the way that you live in relationship with one another, the more that you tolerate those things which God says are not good leads to stagnant complacency. And the problem for all of us is this. The problem for all of us is that we've been born into a world that is full of sin. And in fact, we ourselves are full of sin as the Apostle Paul makes clear throughout all of his writings that we are full of sin up to the brim. Since we are full of sin, we are always in this position, always in this position to either choose a godly path of life, a righteous path of life, or a sinful path of life. We will always be in a position to choose either or. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in the book of Galatians that there is a war going on deep inside of us whereby the, the desires of our flesh are at war with the desires of the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, he's making war against the desires of the flesh. Both of them are at war with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do which means that you will simultaneously desire and want to do the things of the flesh. You will want to get angry with people. You will want to manipulate the situation. You will want to live for your own selfish gain while pretending like you're living for somebody else's gain. You will continue to war against that because the other side of you will always say, no, I should live in a way that honors and glorifies God. I should live in a holy manner. And this war will be happening to keep you from doing the things you want to do and when you compromise when you compromise you become stagnantly stale and complacent it's a picture of falling asleep at the wheel I don't know how many of you have ever watched National Lampoon's vacation movies but there's one of those or a couple of those where He's driving late into the night, and his wife says, we probably should pull over, honey, so you can get some sleep. And he goes, no, baby, just another hour, I'm fine. So everybody else falls asleep, and pretty soon, you see that he's asleep too. (laughs) Driving. And the car veers off the road, goes flying down an off-ramp through town, narrowly missing all sorts of accidents before it finally slides sideways into a parking stall at a hotel where they wanted to stay all while he's sleeping. And while watching this scene unfold, you know this is not the story of life. We do not get to coast through life sleeping complacently, stagnantly, doing whatever our hearts choose, doing whatever our desires lead us to. 
and then expect to just slide in neatly into the presence of God. It's not going to happen that way. This is not a picture of picking up your cross and living like Christ. This is not a picture of what it means to pick up your cross and be a disciple of Jesus who is not pursuing what the world offers. Called tolerance, compromise is the issue. And Paul says in the book of Romans that the outcome of pursuing sin is death. You die, literal death. Spiritually and literally, you die because of death. The reason that, it, that it is appointed to all people one time to die is because there is sin in the world, and sin has soaked the world, and it has marred the world, and, and not just the world, but each and every one of us has been marred by this sin, and the outcome is death. It's separation from our Father who loves us and has done everything to win us back. The outcome of sin is death. And Jesus says the same thing in this text when it comes to losing or forfeiting our souls. The meaning is the same. Listen. Listen close. You could have the sexiest of sexual partners. You could have the longest list of dating relationships. You could have all the money in the world, the job of your dreams, every possession you ever desired, every impulse within you could receive what it wants immediately. Every desire inside of you could go completely unchecked and be held unaccountable. You could compromise the gray areas of life. You could tolerate patterns of shameful living. You could give in and not hold the lines of purity that protect and promote holiness because it's just too hard. And the payment for all of this would be the forfeiting of your very soul. Is this what you want, my friends? Is this what you want? Do you want to forfeit everything that is good and godly for momentary pleasures of this world? Are you really okay standing passively by, saying nothing, while your friends forfeit their lives for worldly pleasure? Are you really okay ignoring or manipulating those gray areas of life so that you can have the momentary pleasures that your heart has been desiring? <clears throat> Ask yourself this. And does your life communicate that you are ashamed of Jesus because of the pursuits of your life? It's in Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And what Jesus is talking about is if you are my disciple, you will not pursue worldly gain because it will kill you. 
Does your life communicate that you are actually ashamed of Jesus because of the pursuit of your life, the focus of your life, the things that you chase hard after, the things that dominate your thinking, your speech, your life? Are you forfeiting your soul? Does your misuse of money and possessions actually communicate that you are ashamed of the way that Jesus generously gave everything for you? Do you enable yourself and your friends to stand passively by while one relationship after the other is destroyed senselessly because of someone's uncurbed, selfish desires? Would you stand passively by while that happens? If you would then you are ashamed of Christ. Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Jesus didn't stand passively by when you were stuck in your sin. He went to the cross. He went to the cross and he made a bold stand for what is right. And he did that so that you could turn in repentance and faith to him and be set free so that you would no longer actively pursue or desire the things of this world which bring death to you. This is what Jesus did. Are you too ashamed to take radical and extreme measures to rout out the sinful strongholds on your life? Are you too ashamed to let the cross of Christ free you authentically? Are you still making excuses shamefully? Are you still blame shifting? And listen, to stand passively by while people that you know run headlong off the nearest and steepest cliffs or or to excuse your own sin, or to blame your sin on others, or to confess your sin without taking appropriate steps to overcome and to kill and to murder and to execute the sin that is alive in you by the power of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ and the Messiah that you claim to believe upon, to confess those things, but not take radical steps. Listen, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. Better to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. This is Jesus saying this. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Cut it off. That is a radical statement. And we think that Jesus is all about love and mercy and grace, and he is. But Jesus says some radical things, and if you would be his disciple, you must live radically, not passively, not complacently, not stagnantly, not sinfully. You must live trusting in him to save you. Sadly, sadly, this is, this is not the way that far too many so-called Christians live today. 
Too many so-called Christians that are living in the gray spaces. They found ways to manipulate the system. Well, that's your interpretation versus my interpretation. I don't like you because you said that too harshly, or I don't like you because you were too gentle, or you're too over the top, or, or you just didn't give enough, or whatever it may be. I don't want to listen to that part of Scripture. That doesn't really apply to me. I don't want to look at that. La, la, la. Plug my ears. Go do other things. We want people to tickle our ears and let us get away with whatever we want. Sadly, that's how too many so-called Christians today live. And they do this in the name of grace and mercy. But the problem is this. The scriptural grace and mercy does not lead to more sin. Paul says, heaven forbid, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid that you would understand grace and mercy and then let it drive you to more sin. Therefore, since grace abounds, should there be more sin? No. Sadly, we have mistaken mercy and grace and God's love and we have twisted it upside down and we've enabled each other to live in ways that are not God-honoring and are not becoming of disciples of Jesus. We've tossed our crosses in the dirt and we've picked up cool instead. Are you ashamed to take a bold stand for Jesus? <coughs> Are you ashamed for taking a bold stand for Jesus by living as he calls you to, by following hard after him, by living just like him, by not being ashamed of him. Are you too afraid? Or can you, like John the Baptist, say that you have lost your life confronting boldly and publicly the shameful and sinful lifestyles of close friends? Can you, like the Apostle Paul, say I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power unto salvation. Can you, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament, can you, like them, say that you are not ashamed of God, you are not ashamed of Jesus to the extent that though the entire nation all around you is bowing in idolatry, that you will not bow. Can you, like them, say the same things? Can you, like Daniel from the Old Testament again, like Daniel, can you say that even if they throw you to the lions publicly to be eaten alive for your bold stance for praying in front of a window publicly, this was not done in a box. None of these men could stand shamefully by and say, that's none of my business. I'm going to do me, you do you. Are you like them? Are you like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and many of the other heroes of Scripture who would stand together and say, I will not put up or shut up on the gospel message because I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I will pick up my cross and I will live like Christ though it costs me everything I have. Will you live that way? That is the message of this text. Have you 
call yourself a disciple of Jesus. He's got to break us to where we are at the point, to where nothing else matters but Christ. So that what that song says that we sang in worship earlier is not just a dead religious song that we sing on Sundays, but it's a song that brings life deep within us because we understand the passion of what Christ gave for us. And we would live unashamedly before our God and before the watching world. This is the message of the scriptures. That you would live like Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus means to live like him. And to live like him means that you're willing to sacrifice everything you once thought was true so that the truth of the scriptures could affect you so that your life would be changed. This is the message of what it means to be a disciple. Disciples of Jesus don't pursue what the world has to offer because to pursue what the world has to offer is to pursue death through worldly gain by compromising the truth, tolerating sin, and watering down grace. The disciples of Jesus don't pursue what the world has to offer because what the world has to offer is death. Jesus says something in the final verse of our text about death, doesn't he? Look at verse 27 with me. Jesus says in verse 27, but I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Simply put, disciples of Jesus see his kingdom. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who sees God's kingdom? It's weird when you're reading this text to see everything that Jesus says and then he lands here. Like some cryptic sentence, like what does this mean? Does this mean that like literally some of these dudes won't die until Jesus comes back? And scholars, many different scholars come down on different points of this text. And this is, this is where I think, this is where we need to land. And this text is all about discipleship. It's all about being a disciple of Jesus. It's all about living like Jesus. It's all about casting off or putting away or repenting of those worldly pursuits that lead to death. It's all about being a disciple. And as he's talking to his disciples, he says, hey guys, there's some of you here. Some of you here will actually be my disciples. Some of you here will not taste death before that happens. A couple different ways you could see this. One that I think is great is this. That when you see the kingdom of God, that's when you actually taste death. It's a metaphorical take on this text. That the death that you taste is a death to yourself. Not a death that separates you from God. That's one way of looking at it. Another way to read this text would be that this idea that some would not die before seeing the kingdom of God is a very literal reading. Meaning literally A couple of you guys here will not die literally. Like you're going to be alive long enough literally to see the kingdom of God. See it. Now the kingdom of God literally means this. In the Greek it means the rule of God. 
Just grapple with that in your minds for a minute. The job of a preacher is to cause you to think and to cause you to know. So think about this, the rule of God. If he's saying there are some of you who will be alive long enough to see God's ruling hand. That's an amazing thing. So could it be in the next few verses when you see the transfiguration of Christ, could that be one of the ways that Jesus' disciples saw the rule of God or the kingdom of God tangibly and visibly? The transfiguration when, when Jesus is glowing after speaking to the prophets and being in his Father's presence. What about the cross? What about, what about the cross and the empty tomb? Couldn't that have been also a picture of God's rule, his sovereign rule, his sovereign authority coming to earth in a very tangible and visible way? The miracles of Christ at work could have been tangible, powerful ways of seeing God's rule and God's kingdom on earth. The church being planted throughout the book of Acts could have been easily one of the ways that God's rule was brought to earth where it was tangible, visible, and they could see it. Many different ways. You can see this throughout the scriptures where you see God's kingdom on earth. And one of the, one of the most important pieces of God's kingdom, just a side note, is that God's kingdom is all about a already and not yet principle. I'm going to write that down somewhere. <clears throat> it's an already or not yet principle or a visible and invisible principle. There are parts of God's kingdom that, that have happened. They've already been happening. God's kingdom is being established. The church is gathered in this room. That is God's kingdom visible already. And then you have the not yet invisible there are things happening in the invisible realm around us. Spiritual warfare. Many of you walk in here with things on your back, things on your shoulders, depression, hurt, anger, sin, whatever it may be. You walk in with that load on you and you walk in literally with, with invisible spiritual things happening. It's the not yet aspect. You need to be set free. There's the not yet aspect of Jesus coming back on the big horse with the bloody cape and the tattoo on the leg and the lightning bolts and the sword. And I love that text from Revelation. I hope I get to ride a horse right behind him. And I hope I get a big AR machine gun. That's another already not yet atmosphere or aspect. It's another already not yet. Because we know Jesus is already the ruling savior, the ruling king. But until a certain point of time, Satan has been given some authority and some ruling capabilities as well. Been given that by our sovereign God in heaven, right? And at some point, Jesus is coming back to end it all. To end it all. And to institute the complete sovereign rule of his kingdom forever. So we live in an already but not yet kingdom aspect. Do you see it? It's the question. Do you see the kingdom at work? Do you see God's sovereign rule? It's easy for us to look out at other people all the time. This church, that church, this person, that person. I want you to ask this in a very personal way this morning. I want you to ask yourself, man, do I see God's kingdom at work 
do I see God's rule ruling my heart, ruling my desires, ruling my thinking, ruling my behavior? Are you making decisions in your life that you know, you're thinking in your head, you know that you know that you know are beyond and outside of what God would ask of you? <coughs> are you living in ways? Are you pursuing desires deep down inside of you actively? Are you actively pursuing those desires, knowing, knowing and having this other desire at war within you that says, that's not of God. That's not of God. Don't pursue that. Don't follow that. And what are you giving into? Is your life characterized by habits that have not been surrendered and submitted to the rule of God because the kingdom of God means the rule of God. Do you see it? Do you see the gospel making application in your life daily? Can you, like the writers of scriptures, say, Jesus died for me. I've seen it. I see that in my mind's eye. My desires are being changed because of that. I'm actively repenting of the ways that I've lived. Do you guys know how many young people today are cohabitating with one another because of selfish tendencies and excuses? Do you guys know how many young men are hooked on pornography because of selfish tendencies? Do you guys know how many people this year will move towards divorce because of sinful tendencies that they've given into where the rule of Christ has not been brought to bear? Do you know how many people say, I believe in God? Do you also understand that the demons say, I believe in God? Mere belief isn't enough. Don't hear me wrong. I don't want to preach a works-based salvation. This is not a do all the right things so that you can get saved and be happy and clappy on Sunday mornings and be a part of that kind of church crowd that just loves getting together. It gets our ears tickled and never says anything hard. Don't hear me wrong. I don't want to fall into this ditch of licentiousness where anybody gets a license based on quote-unquote misapplication of grace to do whatever they want. And I also don't want to get into this other ditch over here that is legalism and you must do X, Y, Z before you can become a Christian or to continue being a Christian or to earn God's love because the center of the road between those two ditches is the gospel message which says because of God's grace, meaning this, meaning you have gotten what you don't deserve. Grace means you've gotten what you don't deserve and what you've gotten is Jesus' death on a cross. You don't deserve it. That's grace. You've also received mercy. God has withheld from you what you and I deserve. My understanding of being given something that I don't deserve, my understanding of God withholding what I deserve motivates me. It motivates me not to play in the gray spaces. It motivates me to live openly. 
motivates me to live unshamedly, motivates me to live rightly. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He's loved me more than I could ever love him, which motivates me to love him more by living as his disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Don't forget it. Are you becoming a disciple of Jesus who sees God's kingdom and who seeks to live like Jesus and who is actively pursuing not to pursue the things of this world? I want to invite our music team back forward as we conclude our time together today. And as we conclude, I want to bring your attention to the quote that I read at the beginning of our time together. Philip Ryken, who is the commentator, lest some of you deceptively think that I might only preach my own thoughts Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this text, says this. Confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior means much more than simply knowing who Jesus is or what he came to do. It means that his life, in all of its suffering, becomes the pattern of your lives. The only Christ that anyone can confess is Christ crucified. And the only way to confess him is to follow him all the way to the cross. Are you ready to be a disciple of Jesus? Listen, I know there's some of you here, you walked in thinking, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Somewhere in this message, you realized you did not walk in as a disciple of Jesus. The preaching of the word has cut you to the core and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And he's calling you. And he's saying, come, follow me. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Live like me. And you can be my disciple. Do you really want to live like Jesus? Are you done pursuing worldly gain? Some of you walked in here and you initially thought, I don't pursue worldly gain. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And yet in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit convicted you and reminded you that you have not been pursuing Christ with everything you have. You actually have been pursuing worldly gain somehow, whether that be through a relationship, a job, the misuse of your money, or whatever. <coughs> Jesus would say, my grace is sufficient for you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. Follow me. Carry your cross daily. Deny yourself. Quit pursuing worldly gain. Live like me. And finally, some of you came in here thinking, I've been a Christian all my life. 
I do some things wrong here and there, but I'm pretty good at maintaining. I maintain a few times in church a year, a few church groups, maybe a week even. I serve here and there. I've been doing pretty good. But in the midst of this, maybe you've realized seeing God's kingdom is not about religious activity. Seeing God's kingdom is no more about religiously good activity as it is about outrightly sinful and shameful activity. It's it's not about either one of those. It's also not about sin by subtraction, which means I just don't do the right thing. It's neither one of those. Seeing God's kingdom is about seeing God's sovereign hand and rule over your life and surrendering to that and then following hard after him and working out your salvation on a daily basis as God enables you to. Are you ready to be a disciple of Jesus? And my hope is that there will be many of you near the front as we conclude, as we pray. I hope that there will be many of you near the front receiving the ministry of prayer. I hope that there are many of you who have been struck to the core somewhere in the midst of this. There will be a few of us near the front here in a few moments after I close in prayer. I encourage you to come forward with any need, any thought that you might have had as we studied this text. This is the way that the Holy Spirit serves you. He speaks to you through the preaching and the study of the word. And in the midst of that, then coming out of that, he ministers to you through the prayers of your brothers and sisters of Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to preach this text this morning. I pray, God, this morning that you would call many to be your disciples. I pray, God, that you would convict us of the places where we have not lived like you. I pray, God, that you would convict us of the places where we have been ashamed of you. I pray, God, that you would show us the places of our lives that need to be submitted and surrendered to God's kingdom rule. Help us to see where you want to rule sovereignly like a king in our lives, where you want to change our desires, our thinking, and our lifestyle. Help us to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, thank you for letting me preach this morning. I love you guys. Stand with us as we worship, and there'll be a few of us near the front to pray with you. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.